Yeah, so we are continuing our series of meaning behind the music today, and I'm very happy to be up here again, um, because I truly believe that worship is extremely important. Romans 12 kind of starts out that chapter by saying that like, we are called to live our daily lives as an act of worship, like through service to one another. So like, it's not just singing songs, but that's definitely one way that we can do it. And so as I've thought about this series, I've realized like, as someone who grew up in the church, like, I needed to be taught that worship music is something that you need to pay attention to the words. Like, I grew up like, just kind of doing the things that my parents told me to do, right? So I went to church on Sundays, and, like, and I sang the songs, right? I, I did what I was told. I, I closed my eyes during prayer. Like, I didn't, I didn't know why we did all of those things. So, so for, for a long time, until like I was about a student's age, like, I, I would just sing songs, right? And I wouldn't really listen to the words, but the hope behind this series is that we can understand that, like, where these words are coming from. And that, like, once we start truly believing the things that we're saying, we can have an experience with the Lord as we sing these songs. And a lot of the times, the songs that we're singing are, are grasping around, like, one specific passage of Scripture. The other week I was up here, and we talked about 1 Peter chapter 1, when we talked about living hope, right? Phil Wickham, great guy, right? This, I, by the way, I said that that song came out in, like, 2015. I was wrong. Turns out I'm wrong sometimes. That, that song, my sister corrected me. That song came out in like 2019. So like I was way off. But like Phil Wickham was like read First Peter 1 and was inspired to write that awesome song. And so like a lot of the times like when we're singing these songs, like it turns out that like we're singing words of scripture, which is really cool and powerful. So, which brings us to the song that we have today, Graves into Gardens. Now, Graves into the Gardens doesn't just take one passage and like plant itself there. It actually kind of bounces around all of scripture. So today what I want to do is read every single lyric for you guys. I'm going to put it up on the screen and I want to show you guys what these words are saying. And then I want to point out different passages of scripture that this song is referencing. The song that we sang just a few minutes ago. Because we're going to find out there's a lot that we can grow from with the words in this song. Okay, and so that, that's my hope, that we can just, by the end of this, you guys can walk out and you can understand what Graves in the Gardens is, is fully about, and, and really realize that if, like, we take these words and heed them, like, we will grow. So, let's start with verse 1, right? It's, it's right up there for us. It says this, I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied here in your love. So when I, when I read those, like that first part, I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. That makes me think immediately of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes is a book in the Old Testament known as a wisdom book. So there's like Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And, and the guy, this guy named Solomon, who's the third king of Israel, um, really cool and interesting guy to study. Um, he was the king of Israel during the time where like, Israel was at its most, like the borders were at its strongest. It was like a world power at that point. And they were building the temple. It was very rich. And God came to Solomon when he was really young and said, hey, you're about to rule this, this powerful nation. Like, I want to give you anything that you want. So, so what would you like? And, and Solomon answers him by saying, I want wisdom so I can lead my people well. And so sure enough, the Lord grants that wish, and Solomon becomes like one of the wisest guys ever. 
And to the point to where neighboring countries would come and visit Israel, come and visit the courts of Solomon so that they can, they can hear truths of wisdom from Solomon. And he goes on to write and like have, have his hands in the books of Proverbs and Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is all about how like Solomon, he, he was like one of the most powerful men in the world, one of the richest men in the world. He's experienced a lot of things. But the ultimate message of that book is, hey, what this world has to offer like, it, it won't give you life. And there's nothing new under the sun. So ultimately what he's saying is, even though this book was written thousands of years ago, it still applies to us today. Because the more things change, the more they stay the same. And, and what this world has to offer ultimately cannot give us life. And so, like, right away, when we, when we look at the, the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, like, the verse, chapter 1, verse 1 is just like an introduction. And then verse 2 is like, right away we get into the message and it tells us this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And that's like, like what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. This idea that everything in this world ultimately is meaningless because the, 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 the days are going to keep continue to go, things are going to age out, and it's going to fade away. And ultimately, the only thing that last, that the only thing that can give us life is God. And that's the second part of verse 1. It goes on to say, Then you came along and put me back together, and every desire is now satisfied here in your love. So that first part is about Ecclesiastes. Now this part reminds me of John 10.10, one of my all-time favorite verses. Jesus says, The thief comes to kill and destroy, but I have come so that you may have life and life to the full. And so what he's doing here is he's referencing like, what Ecclesiastes is talking about when he's mentioning the thief, right? Like the enemy wants us to, um, to, to, to invest our lives into what the world has to offer because he knows that that will ultimately bring us death and destruction. So the thief comes to kill and destroy, but then on the other side, God, Jesus has come so that we may have life and life to the full. And so that, that's what verse 1, like we, the lyrics that we're reading here, that's what it's telling us, that Every desire that we have can be satisfied through God because he is the only thing in this planet that can bring us eternal, abundant life. It actually, this, talking about this reminds me of this guy named Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal. Has anyone heard of Blaise Pascal before? Sick name, right? Like, you would remember that name. Well, so first off, Blaise Pascal, the first time I heard his name, I was in like fifth grade and I was in advanced math, no big deal. <laughs> I was really good at math until they added letters. Once they added letters and everything and graphs, I, I, I failed. I'm, a terrible, I'm terrible at math. But there was a time where I was really good at it. And this guy named Pascal, there's, there's this thing called Pascal's Triangles that was like, like you, shapes and numbers and they multiplied and they, you guys ever heard of Pascal's Triangles? Has anyone, that, that's a thing, right? Yeah, it, okay. This guy named Blaise Pascal was a mathematician, but one thing, I always thought he was like, that's what he was known for, like Pascal's Triangles, thing that I learned in like fifth grade. But really, like, when I went back to seminary, I found out that Pascal was this Christian apologist, and he actually used numbers to prove that God was real. And he had a lot of really cool thought experiments. And, and one of the things that he had, one of, the, one of the most famous things that he said is that everybody in the world has a, a, a heart, oh, wait, sorry, has a hole in their heart that's, that's the shape of, that, wait, wait. Everyone has a God-shaped hole in their heart that only God can fill, right? So here's the thing. Like, we live our lives with this gap in our hearts, and we're trying to fill that gap with, with whatever this world has to offer. So fill in, you know, like, money, 
likes on Instagram, whatever, whatever, like grades, good school, job, status, right? We're trying to fill that hole with all of those things. But the only thing that can truly fill it is God, right? And that, that's, what this, that's what the first words of this song is ultimately saying. There's, we've searched the world. There's nothing that can give us life. There are things that maybe can temporarily fill that hole, but eventually it'll leak. It, maybe it'll give us some pleasure for a moment, but ultimately, like what, what Jesus tells us in John 10, is ultimately those things lead to death. There's only one thing that can truly fill the void in our heart. There's only one thing that can give us abundant life, and that's Jesus, and so right away, this song starts off, and it's just, it's killing it, right? Like, and it's also a bop, by the way. Like, you guys are clapping and everything. Like, it's easy to get into it, right? So moving on to verse 2, we see this. That now that we've invested and, and we believe that, that Christ is the only thing that can fill us up, verse 2 goes on to say, I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws. Lord, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. Because the God of the mountain is the God of the valley, there's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again. So whenever we, we start hearing about like weakness, I immediately think of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where, where the Apostle Paul is talking about an interaction he had with God. And, and God tells him this. Starting in verse 9, it says this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in, in weakness. Therefore, this is Paul now saying, because God has told me this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So like when we invest in, in, in the kingdom of God, like weakness is our biggest strength. Which is something that, isn't, that, that, that does not happen in the world, right? Like when we live our lives in the world, we don't want to expose our weakness. We don't want people to know it. And if we do share our weaknesses, it's with the people that we're closest with. It actually reminds me like right now playoff hockey is a big thing. I don't know if, any, if there's any hockey fans right now. But uh, also playoff basketball, but more, more particularly hockey because hockey is a really physical sport and people get injured a lot. And when they get injured, the medical staff... They have, to, they have to give the other team something. They have to say, like, hey, this, this person's injured. But, like, they don't, they, they give as, as little of information as possible. So, like, if somebody has, like, a hurt wrist, they'll be, like, upper body injury. That way, like, the team doesn't know, like, what about this, per, this player is hurt. Because if they knew that their right wrist would, was hurting, they would exploit that weakness. And that's the way, the way the world operates, right? The world exploits others' weaknesses for their own gain. But now we have God on the flip side saying, hey, you are made strong in your weaknesses. I died for those weaknesses. So you can actually boast in those things because I raise you up. Last year, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5 through 7. Jesus is establishing this new kingdom of heaven, and he's talking about like, how this, this new kingdom is going to operate. And he goes on starting. He starts that like, teaching by saying, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the weak because I will make you strong. And so that's one of the, the great news, one of the, one of the best things about the gospel is that we are made strong through Jesus and we're actually encouraged to share our weaknesses with him because then we get made strong, like, like what 2 Corinthians is telling us here. And then it goes on to say that the second part of that verse, because the God of the mountain is the God of the valley. There's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again. So what this, what this part is saying, hey, like, 
God's with me up here, and he's with me down here. And the book of Ecclesiastes makes it pretty clear that, that life is like a roller coaster. We're up and when we're down. We're up and we're down again. And we need to remember, though, that this God is with us on the high points, on the mountaintops, but he's also with us on the lowest parts of our lives, in the valleys. And he's making us strong and bringing us out of those valleys, back up to, to the mountaintops. When we remember this, we can be encouraged and strengthened like what Jesus is telling us. This, this portion reminds me of Romans 8, 38 through 39, where, where the Apostle Paul tells us there's nothing, no enemy, no, no, no condition of weather, no, no failure that you have that can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that, that, that we can do that can make us evade God's grace and mercy once we are a part of his family. And we need to know that and remember that because not only are we made strong, but, but we are loved by our creator and there's nothing we can do to lose that love. So again, verse one and two of this song just, is just spewing the good news of the gospel over and over and over again. And so then we get to the chorus where it says, oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. Lord, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. Now, this reminds me of another thing that Paul wrote about. Paul wrote a lot. And as you guys can tell, right, like I'm bouncing around. I'm in Ecclesiastes one minute. I'm in, I'm in 2 Corinthians, and I'm back in Romans. Now I'm in Philippians. Philippians 3, verse 8, tells us this. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I've just been going through the book of Acts um, with, with my middle schoolers, and we just got to the point where, where Saul becomes Paul, and that, that, that's the guy who's writing this letter. So like, before Paul was converted, before he became a believer and, and, and met Jesus, he was like this elite guy. He was like on top of the world. Like he, was, he was a Roman citizen. He was most likely wealthy. He was well-educated. He was a leader of the Jewish faith. And then he met Jesus, and everything changed. And then he writes this, book, this, this verse in Philippians where he says, hey, I've had the world, like, and I consider all that garbage. I, I consider all that trash, the, the status that I had, the money, the education. None of that matters because now I know Christ. And I'll trade all of those things happily. I'll do that over and over again if it means that I get to be known and loved by Christ. And that's what this, this chorus is saying. And it's my hope and prayer for each and every one of you guys. As, as you're going to school with people that aren't like-minded, that, that are doing other things, right? I pray that you can know that the words of this song is true. Like, there is nothing that is better than God. The Apostle Paul says everything else is garbage compared to God. And, and I believe that. And I, my prayer is that you guys, whoa, you guys can see that too. Moving, moving to the bridge. Now, the bridge is like, this is where like the bop really comes out, right? Like this is when you guys start clapping and there's some really good references and it's, it's really good, right? So let's read it. This is also where the, uh, the title of the song comes from. That's, if you're ever like wondering like where's the good part of the worship song, like the title, normally that's where the bop comes in. So um, you turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can, right? So like you turn mourning to dancing and you guys are supposed to clap like that, that, that. Like you turn, you give beauty for ashes, right? And then it goes on to say, you turn graves into gardens, you turn bones into armies, you turn seas into highways. Okay, so starting with the beginning part of the bridge, you turn mourning to dancing, you give beauty for ashes. Now this one I think is coming straight from this, this, this verse in Isaiah. Now Isaiah is a prophet, 
He was around at the fall of Israel as a kingdom. So I talked about Solomon. Like, that's the beginning of the nation of Israel. That's when they're at the height of their powers. Now we, we, we zoom a few hundred years. We get to Isaiah. And that nation that was once up here, it's now down here. They just have been dominated by Babylon. And they're, they're under occupation again. So they're at a, lo- a low point as a people. Like, they haven't been lower since Egypt when they were enslaved, which we'll talk about in a minute. So, so they're at a point where they're enchained again. They've lost their nation. They've been taken away from Jerusalem. But God is giving this message of hope. Isaiah is all about hope, especially in this portion of Isaiah. So in Isaiah 61.3, he says this. And, and see if you can spot the lyrics of this song. So he's, he's promising his people of Israel, and he goes on to say this. And provide for those who grieve in Zion to, to, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planning of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So when it says, like, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, Zion's another way of saying Jerusalem. Like, that's, that's the mount where the temple was, where they believe God dwelt. And they no longer were living there. And so God is promising Isaiah and saying, hey, I am able to take, like, make beauty out of ashes, I am able to turn people's mourning into joy. Right? That's the God that we worship. We have a God who, despite all despair, despite all the valleys that we're in, we can have hope because we know that our God is above that and powerful and can save us and can restore us. And that's what this, that's what this song is referencing here. Then it goes on to say, you turn, you turn graves into gardens. Now, I searched I searched all of scripture looking for that in, in, in the Bible. And funny enough, that's not, that's not a figure of speech that's used in scripture. Like graves in the garden, which is so beautiful. And that's like, that's like the, the, the title of the song. That's the money part of the song, right? But the theme of what it's saying there is, hey, you take dead things, graves, and you turn them into gardens, right? Graves is all about where dead people go. And gardens is all about life. It's all about fertility and, and fruit, Right? And only God can, can do that. Only God can take a grave and turn it into a garden. And that they continue that type of figure of speech with, you turn bones into armies. This is a direct quote to the Valley of Dry Bones, which is in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. Again, still bouncing through scripture. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet of the Lord who came right after Isaiah. So at this time, Israel is still under captivity by Babylon, and same type of message of hope comes to Ezekiel when God comes to him in a vision, where Ezekiel is sitting in this valley, and all he's surrounded by dry bones. He's surrounded by skeletons, right? And then God tells him to speak life into them, and all of a sudden, these skeletons raise up and start living again. There's an army of bones, all to say that, hey, I can restore Israel. I, you can have hope in me. I can take the dead and bring them back to life. That is, that, that, that's my business. That's what I do. So he encourages Ezekiel and his people by using this figure of speech of taking these bones and, and making an army out of it. And that's, that's what this song is referencing when it talks about you turn bones into armies. And then you turn seas into highways. Now this one we probably recognize, right? This idea of God can part seas for his people to save them. It happens a few times in scripture. It happens one time with the Jordan River as the Israelites are leaving the wilderness and going to the promised land. God parts the Jordan River, which is flooding at the time. They cross on dry ground. And then to close out the events of Egypt, right? 
in the book of Exodus, we find out this is going way back now. This is going hundreds of years back before Ezekiel and Isaiah and Solomon. Um, the, the people of Israel are enslaved. And, and God delivers them out of slavery uh, uh, in Egypt. And Egypt is like the power of the world. And we, we all know Moses takes a staff, right? And, and he's, he's like the, the Egyptian army is coming after them. And they're cornered by the Red Sea. And, and, and Moses puts his staff down and parts the Red Sea. And, and, and the Israelites are able to walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. And they're saved. They're delivered from captivity. Now, it wasn't Moses' staff. He didn't say anything special to do that. There wasn't any sort of sorcery or conjuring that he did. That was all God. And God is the only one that can do things like that. God is the only one that can make us walk through, walk through a body of water so that we can do a great job of reminding us of all the things that the Lord has done for his people, all the promises that he's fulfilled, all the goodness that he has for us, all the hope that he can offer us. This song has it all. Right? And it also reminds us of how beautiful the story of Scripture is and how, and how Scripture is ultimately connected. All of these themes can be found in every book of the Bible. I found this picture like, the, other, the other day, and I, like, I made it my, my desktop wallpaper. It's, it's kind of nerdy. You, you can show the picture. It just shows how connected the, um, the whole, all of Scripture is. So if you look, the white lines on the bottom, that's every single chapter of Scripture. So like right here, this long white line, it's like right in the middle. Um, that's Psalm 119. That's the longest chapter in scripture. It's like, it's got over 150 verses. And every, like, so like that's all the way back there is Genesis and, and all the way over there is Revelation. And all of these little arcs here are all the times the Bible references each other. So all the times that these chapters are referencing one another. And so it does a great job of showing us how connected and interwoven scripture is. Because it's all telling one complete story. Even though scripture was written over thousands of years, even though it was written by multiple different authors in, in different languages, in, in many different times and in, in different countries, right? Even though all those things were happening, this is how connected scripture is. It's like, I forgot the number, it's like 16,000 different references of, of different books. And remember, there's no internet, there's none of that, right? Like this is all people knowing the word of God and knowing the promises and themes that are in it and them referencing it over and over again. And not going to lie, it makes a sick desktop wallpaper. If you guys ever want to see, let, let me know, and I'll show you my desktop. It's pretty sick. I like, gave Jess like a 15-minute like a jargon. I'm like, like, babe, I'm sure you're curious why I changed my desktop wallpaper. Like, <laughs> that's, that's how big of a loser I am. So, so yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, like, it observes what God has done for his people in Scripture. Now, finally, W, the final point. It warns us that nothing else in the world compares to God. Right, like over and over again, this song is saying, "You're the only one that can do this." Like it's only through your love that I can be fulfilled, right? And it's it's reminding us and warning us that there are a lot of other things that that try to fill this hole that's in our heart, but only God can do that. And actually, we we can find ourselves getting into trouble when we start to depend on other things to fill us up. That's that's where we start sinning, right? That's where we start taking death again instead of life. So if we consider all four of these things as we worship, right, as we sing this song, I really think it can help us grow. It can help us get closer with Christ. And that's our ultimate goal as we, as we have you sing these worship songs. So you can feel like you're in the presence of the Lord because you are. And because this God that, 
that I just showed you, like all throughout Scripture, is referenced over and over again. That God is still alive and working today. That God is still taking dry bones and making them live again. That God can still take a grave and turn it into a garden. That, like I said, like I said before, He's in the business of doing those things, and it's all because He loves us. So my prayer. Like, we could probably do this growth thing with all of the songs of Scripture, but in particular, when we sing Graves into Gardens, we can, be, we, can be, we can remember these things and grow. Let me close in prayer.